morning, everyone. Glad you are here with us. If you're a guest with us, thanks for, uh, for being here this morning. As you can see, we're kind of doing some uh, remodeling around here. We'll wrap it up before long, but uh, after 21 years, I guess, it's, uh, it's time to do some changes. And um, we'll get some, get some shades up here, uh, I guess. The curtain's gone, shades uh, this week, uh, carpet coming in a couple of weeks, and getting the things uh, about wrapped up. So um, the only thing that doesn't get a facelift on the stage. <laughs> yes. Hey, if you've ever planned to travel overseas, you've probably gone to the State Department uh, website on travel advisories. At least it's probably always a good idea to do that. And just see what the travel advisories are. There's actually four levels of uh, advisory. So level four is the most dangerous. So you see a level four travel advisory, you don't want to go there. It says do not travel. And it would be, I think right now there's like 20 countries on the level four travel advisory list. So um, Russia, Ukraine, Afghanistan, North Korea, Syria, you know, Iran, Iraq, Haiti, uh, places I know you'd love to spend your vacation, but you probably shouldn't because it's a travel for, uh, travel advisory. Don't go there. The Apostle Paul had one travel advisory level four on his list, and it was the city of Jerusalem. Um, Paul had uh, been traveling. He'd been on his third missionary journey and uh, in Asia Minor, into Greece, Corinth, Philippi, Ephesus in Asia Minor. And as we saw last week, he one of the things he was doing was collecting offerings uh, to come back and bring to Jerusalem to the believers, to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, and give as a benevolence gift. They were suffering. There was great poverty. And uh, to show the unity of the body, uh, the kindness and the oneness of, the, of a unified church, he was saying Gentile churches, great opportunity to come up with a gift, and we'll give it to the, uh, when I get back to Jerusalem, we'll give it to the believers in, uh, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. So that's what he was doing. The problem was, as we saw last week, everybody was telling them, even prophets of God, don't go there. It's the last place you want to go. And part of the reason was, uh, Paul was viewed as, you know, kind of a, a traitor, a turncoat. He had been this, this, um, rising star of Judaism as a young man, a Pharisee of the highest order. Uh, he was zealous uh, for, for the Judaistic law. He was on uh, a war path to stomp out these uh, followers of Jesus, who was a, just a dead Messiah. And uh, he got saved on the road to Damascus, that Jesus showed up and real, revealed to himself, uh, to Paul, that he was alive and he's real. And it changed Paul's life, and he became an apostle to the Gentiles of all places. So you can see why Jews in Jerusalem were not looking kindly to this guy, because the, the Jews hated the Gentiles. Now, I read a little bit more on this in the historical uh, part of this this week. Josephus was a Jewish historian of that first century. And Josephus writes that at this, right at this exact same time, kind of the mid-late AD 50s, uh, where Paul was going back to Jerusalem, that whole time period, there was, um, there was a, a, a growing animosity, more and more so, uh, 
of the Jews against the Romans and against the, the Gentiles. There was one insurrection against another. Uh, messiahs were arising and saying, follow me, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll deliver you from the um, Romans and from the Gentiles. And there was just this seething hatred and growing, boiling over uh, hatred going on in Jerusalem against anything Roman, anything Gentile. So Paul, here's Paul, this traitor to Judaism, going back to Jerusalem in that, in that time period of, of great animosity, and then he's got a target on his own back because he's, he's going and to the Gentile world and telling them that they can have a relationship with God freely because Jesus died for their sins and rose again. So everybody was saying, you know, this is not, <laughs> that just, just isn't very wise, Paul. Prophets of God, don't go there. You will be bound. It's not going to go well. But undaunted, that's exactly what Paul did. He went to Jerusalem. Now, this morning, we're going to cover uh, something I've not done before, I don't think, in 40-some years of preaching. We're going to cover two and a half chapters. So, I hope you brought, I, didn't we announce that you're supposed to bring a bag lunch today? <laughs> you didn't? <laughs> well, but we are going to fly through this uh, material here. I'm going to look at it in six acts, this Paul in Jerusalem and six acts. So take your Bibles, and uh, we're going to start in uh, verse 17 of Acts chapter 21. Act number one. Act number one. Verse 17, after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly, and the following day Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And Luke is writing this, so Luke's a part of this. In chapter 20, verse 4, he gave another list of, of followers uh, that had been with Paul, Secundus and Sopater and Aristarchus and Trophimus and, and Timothy, and they all came to Jerusalem. Now they're meeting with the leaders of the Jerusalem church. They give them the offering, um, and then it says they reported, verse 19, after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So he gives a report going kind of uh, city by city. This is what God did in Ephesus. This is what God did in Philippi. This is what God did in Thessalonica. This is what God did in, in Corinth. And he gives this report, and it's exciting. And it says that they begin glorifying God, verse 20. But they also said to him, <clears throat> you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And they are all zealous for the law. And they've all been told about you that you are reaching or teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Oh boy, this is where the problems begin. We're so grateful that God has used you, Paul, to go among the Gentiles. Let's tell you what God has done here. Thousands of Jewish people have come to follow Jesus as their Messiah. They are born-again followers of Jesus, but the, they are zealous for the law, as any good Jew would be. And there is reports, Paul, we've put our ear to the ground, and we hear this stuff in Jerusalem that, um, well, you're not taken very kindly to because... Um, they are talking about how uh, you among the Gentiles are telling them to forsake Moses and not to circumcise their children and not to walk according to the Jewish customs. 
Verse 22, what then is to be done? Because they will certainly hear that you have come to town. Uh, a major problem here. And so they have a plan. Verse 23, therefore do this that we tell you. This is not a suggestion, Paul. This is, um, this is what we want you to do. Uh, we have four men who are under a vow. Four Jewish believers, I think, in Jesus. Four men who have under a vow, some type of a, a, a Jewish vow, uh, probably the law, what's called a Nazarite law, a vow, um, strictly from the, the Old Testament. And take them now, verse 24, purify yourself along with them, <clears throat> and then pay for their expenses so that they can finish their vow, shave their heads, and all will know that there's nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourselves also walk orderly according and keeping the law. Uh, might sound a little manipulative there, but uh, look, this is their city. These are the church. This is the church that they are overseeing. They are Jewish followers of Jesus Christ. They're zealous for the law, and Paul has been away for a long time, many years, and they've heard these rumors about Paul and what he's been saying, and you know how rumors go. So, Paul, here's, here's, here's what we want you to do. Take these four guys, and with them, go purify yourself. Go through the, the ritual washings. Go into a mikvah as you go into the temple. Wash uh, your cleansing, uh, uh, ceremonial cleansing, and then take out your money and pay the cost for the, for the uh, sacrifices so that these guys can finish their vow. If it comes from you, everybody will see that, and, you know, it'll, it'll be cool. Things will, things will probably settle down. And, verse 25, as far as the Gentiles, they said, well, um, those Gentiles who have believed, well, we've already wrote that years ago at the Jerusalem Council, um, that they are to, um, having decided that they should abstain from meat, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from uh, what is strangled, and from fornication. In other words, they're saying, we're not going to put anything more upon the Gentiles than what we've already asked them to do seven, eight, ten years before at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. So we're not putting anything more. Don't, don't misunderstand us, Paul. We're not asking Gentile believers to do anything more than what we've already asked and requested of them, just to keep their sensitivities to the Jewish believers. We're just saying, you know, you, a Jew, and with your reputation, let's do this thing, and so let's, let's just get ahead of, um, of the rumors. And Paul then agreed. It's like, well, that's a plan to me. Paul took the men, verse 26, the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Done deal. <clears throat> Act 2, because it didn't go so well. Look at verse 27. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him. Now, these were Jews from uh, probably some city, maybe Ephesus, uh, Troas. But they had seen Paul. They'd obviously, Paul would go to a synagogue when he was on these missionary journeys, and they had encountered him. They saw him. And uh, now they see Paul in Jerusalem, and um, they said uh, they stirred up the crowd. And they kept crying out, verse 28, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who, who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and the this place, the temple. And besides, 
He's even brought Greeks into the temple, and he has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now, you know how rumors go. And they maybe thought, and they assumed, they jumped to the conclusion, but let me tell you, you don't do that in the Jewish temple. You, that was, in fact, there was a sign outside the Jewish temple that if any Gentile uh, entered beyond this line, you would be struck dead. You would, you would be killed. It was death penalty. There was a warning sign there. So these people are assuming that Paul took Trophimus because they saw him with him and they knew Trophimus was a Gentile from Ephesus. He's brought him into the temple. He's defiled our religion. Verse 30, then all the city, all the city was provoked. And the people rushed together, taking hold of Paul. They dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now, I'm not sure if Luke meant this or not, but he includes that little detail. The temple doors were shut. And I almost think that Luke is saying, in a symbolic sort of way, um, that Judaism, for the final time, was shutting its doors to the Messiah to the true message of the gospel of Jesus. Here was the spokesman. Here was Paul. And they threw him out and they shut the door to Judaism. Now remember again, there's this growing animosity. Jerusalem is a hotbed of antagonism, of hatred towards Gentiles and towards the Romans. And by the way, as we're going through these different acts, Keep, be aware of, of, of where God shows up throughout here. Now, it's, it's going to be, um, it's not going to be very overt, but where do you think there are divine coincidences happening? Here's one of them as we keep reading. So they shut the doors, verse 31, while they were seeking to kill him. So, I mean, this is doomsday for Paul. A report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Now, we're going to find out a little bit later. This guy's name is Claudius Lysias. He is the commander of the Roman garrison in, in Jerusalem. And a cohort, and we saw this a number of uh, months ago, that would probably be somewhere around 600, maybe to 1,000 Roman soldiers. Uh, the, the Greek term for him as commander or tribune is kiliarch, which is the word for 1,000. So this, this is the head Roman soldier in Jerusalem. And he hears that there's confusion going on. There's something, there's a mob forming. There's trouble downtown Jerusalem. And he wants nothing of it. He's been trying to keep a lid on all this for probably a number of years. So he takes along, verse 32, some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So you got the scene? They were wailing on Paul and all the, the mass of people and the, the, all the whole city was provoked. It's kind of like a, I picture it almost like a beehive with the queen bee and all the other worker bees are all buzzing around. Well, what they're doing with Paul, they're all buzzing around him and pulverizing him. And then they see the commander come and the troops and they stop, but they, there they are. There's Paul right in the middle. Well, what's the commander to think? Verse 33, the commander came up and took hold of Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains and began asking who he was and what he had done. 
But among the crowd, some were shot in one thing and some another, and when they could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he just ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks. And when he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. They couldn't even get Paul through the mob. They're trying to wail on Paul, and they have to lift him up, kind of like a mosh pit in a rock concert. You know, they're carrying body surfing this guy out of trouble. Verse 36, because the multitude kept following them and shouting away with him. Well, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I ask you something? And the guy stops dead in his tracks and he says, do you know Greek? Because Paul responded and asked him in Greek. Paul's a learned guy. Now, that just threw this commander for a loop because he said then in verse 38, then, then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Now, a little historical background here. Again, there's all these insurrections happening. Well, uh, Josephus again tells us about three or four years earlier, there was an Egyptian Jew who stirred up the crowd and had a great following. Luke writes there were 4,000 that he, uh, were his assassins, his troops, and they were, they were put, going to put a world of hurt. They were going to do a smackdown on the Romans. Josephus actually inflates the figures and said there was probably 30,000. Luke writes 4,000. And this Egyptian Jew took him out in the wilderness and he was going to fight the Romans. Kind of a Moses figure, you know, out in the wilderness. Well, the Romans got wind of it. <clears throat> they squashed that rebellion, killed hundreds of these, of these 4,000 assassins. But the Egyptian leader got away. And for three, four years, they didn't know where he was. Until that day, and the commander thought, aha, we've got him. But then Paul responded in Greek. And who are you? You're not the Egyptian? And Paul said in verse 39, I'm a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of a significant city. Now I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. No, I'm not who you thought I was. I'm a Jew. I'm from Cilicia, of Tarsus, a Tarsus of Cilicia. Would you mind if I spoke to these mob, to these people? And amazingly, verse 40, the commander gave him permission. And so Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. What an amazing thing that must have been. The mob, just a moment before, screaming, hollering, throwing epitaphs at Paul, trying to kill him. And now he quiets them down, and he speaks to them in the Hebrew dialect, and it says in verse 2, and here we are in Act 3 now. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet, and so he spoke. This is what he said. Now, Paul's going to give his kind of personal testimony. I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, no less, Everybody would have known who Gamaliel was. He was a, a famous rabbi. He was a, a great teacher of the law. And Paul had been educated when he was a young man by Gamaliel. So when, you know, Paul's kind of name dropping here. I was educated by Gamaliel. Oh. Strictly according to the law of our fathers. Being zealous for God just as you are all today. And by the way, 
I just have no time to do this, and, and not that you would be interested, but if you really want to be interested, there is some uh, great um, research done here on how Paul used um, his rhetorical skills. This is some model, this and some of the other speeches he's going to give while he's on trial, how he used uh, Greek um, rhetorical uh, skills to communicate his message. This is, in a sense, one of them where he says, um, you know, I was zealous for God, just, just like you are all today. <laughs> I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prison as also the high priest and all the council of elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring them, uh, bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. I killed people for this dead rabbi. I put people in prison. And he might have been referring to Stephen and hundreds of others. Uh, Paul was feared he was, as it said earlier, he was in chapter 8, he was breathing out threats, going around house to house, finding Christians. He says, you know that. These chief priests, they know that. For from them, verse 5, I also received letters to do this. And so I started off to Damascus to get more of those Christians, verse 6, but it happened. I love that. So I'm on my way to Damascus. I'm going to go kill some Christians. But it happened that I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime. A very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. Now, those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but they didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And so I said, verse 10, what should I do, Lord? And by the way, someone said, those are great questions for any disciple of Jesus to ask. Who are you really? I think of the disciples when they were in the boat with Jesus and Jesus calms the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And they were gripped with fear, it says, even more so. And they wonder, who is in the boat? Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Folks, it's a great question to ask. If you've been a Christian for 60 years, it's still good to ask, Lord, who are you? Reveal yourself to me even more. And the second great question, what do you want me to do? I'm at your disposal. And the Lord said to Paul, get up and go on to Damascus, and there you will be told of all the things that have been appointed for you to do, you will be told everything that you have been appointed to do, that has been ordained for you to do. Um, it was that moment that I think Paul came to the realization he had been fighting the wrong battle. I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you're persecuting. And I'm in charge of your life. And I've got things for you to do. So now, go to Damascus. Uh, verse 11 continues, But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and I came into Damascus. And there was a certain man named Ananias who was a devout uh, man uh, under the standard of the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. And you see what, what Paul's doing? He's, who's the 
crowd he's talking to, that mob of Jewish people who hated him. And he's just telling them, um, I, I have not, I have not um, spurned Judaism. God led me to Ananias, a devout man by the standards of the law, a man who's well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. And he came to me, verse 13, and standing near to me, he said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time, I looked up at him, and he said to me, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear an utterance from his mouth, and you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, don't delay. Get up, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, I don't have time to develop this. Uh, I will direct you to the sermon I did back on November 5th, and I know you all remember that well. <clears throat> when we talked about Acts chapter 2, when Paul preached to the Jewish people in Jerusalem who had crucified the Messiah, they gathered together. Peter is, is, is preaching to the people, and Peter tells them who they crucified. This Jesus who you crucified, God has made both Lord and Messiah, Christ, and the people, the Jewish people who had just, just a few weeks before, put Jesus on the cross through the hands of the Romans. They said, what, what should we do? We're God's chosen people. We're the blessed people of God. We're the people of the Old Testament. We're God's special people. What do we do? We put to death our Messiah. And you know what Peter tells him? Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, and now here's Paul, a Palestinian Jew, one who had rejected Jesus as Messiah from the very beginning. Ananias is telling uh, Paul to do the same thing that Peter had told other Palestinian Jews to do 30 years before. Call upon his name. Be baptized for the remission of your sins. Now, that's not shared with Gentile believers or with, with Gentile audiences, Cornelius in chapter 10. In other words, this is something that was unique. That uh, exhortation was something that was unique to the Palestinian Jews of that time. Clear as mud. Anyway, November 5th, uh, the, the, the Acts chapter 2 sermon, and um, you can check it up on that, but uh, we've got to get moving. Um, so, um, Verse 17, and it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple after he was converted. He was back in Jerusalem in the temple. I fell into a trance and I said to him, saying to me, and I saw him saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, said Jesus, because they will not accept your testimony about me. Well, I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I was standing by approving and watching out for the cloaks of those who were slaying him. Paul is just giving a little argument here to Jesus like, why would I leave Jerusalem? I mean, I've got a platform. They all know me. They know me. And I can tell them now this great conversion story of what... No, no. Go, he said. Verse 21, go. For I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Your mission, Paul, is not to minister to the Jews. I'm going to send you far away to minister to the Gentiles. Now, Paul is telling this story. Who's listening to the story? The Jewish mob that just a few minutes ago wanted to kill him. And it says right after that, here we begin Act 4, verse 22, they listened to him up to this statement 
that God was going to send them far away to the Gentiles. And they said, that's it. Stop it right there. This is over. Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their clothes and tossing dust in the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. So Paul was doing this, uh, this little personal uh, testimony on those steps. Here were all the massive people, the Jewish people who just a few moments before wanted to kill him. The commander, Claudius Lysias, is watching this whole thing with his soldiers, maybe not understanding what Paul was saying because Paul was doing this in Hebrew. And when Paul talks about that God has sent him to the Gentiles, the crowd erupts, the commander sees what's happening, and they're coming for Paul. They are livid, and they're coming after him. And so the commander takes him, whisks him away into the barracks there at the, the fortress of Antonia, there in Jerusalem, if you've ever been there. He says, we've got to get some information on this guy. So what does a good Roman commander do? You strip the guy's clothes, you put him over the, 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 the stump, put his back like they did with Jesus, taunt, and you take your cat and nine tails with the, with the chips of bone or lead in them, and you're going to start pulverizing his back to get information. Who are you? And so they put Paul over that stump. They, his back is taunt. The guy's about to raise the cat and nine, bring it down on his back. And um, Paul says, when they stretch, verse 25, when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who's a Roman and uncondemned? Now, I would have loved to have been a fly in the wall on this one. I don't know what tone of voice, how, you know, I can almost, it was like Paul was playing this guy like a fiddle, but he's down there, he's spreading, and then just before he gets clobbered with the cat and nine tails, he looks up and says, uh, by the way, bub, is it lawful for you to, Scourge a Roman citizen, which it's not. They could get in big trouble. And the, um, when the centurion, verse 26, heard this, he went to the commander and told him, what are you about to do? This man is a Roman. And the tribune, the, the, the commander, came and said to him, tell me, are, are you a Roman? And Paul said, yes. Well, the commander answered, and he says, I acquired my citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, well, I was actually born a citizen. Now, again, a little historical detail. You can't buy Roman citizenship. It was not for sale. In other words, this guy acquired it through a large sum of money, meaning he greased the skids. He, he, he bribed. He, got a, he did it with a bribe. He said, I had to pay a big chunk of money to get this little piece of paper that says I'm a Roman citizen. How did you get yours? Paul said, I was born one. And again, we don't know the history for sure. Cilicia, Tarsus, it was a, it was a free city. The Romans, uh, the, the emperor had given it special privilege. Either Paul's father or grandfather, something happened in that family that had pleased the emperor. And that family, everybody born in that family were free Roman citizens. Paul said, I was born a citizen. Verse 29, therefore those who were about to examine him immediately let him go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman because he had put him in chains. You've got to love this guy, Claudius Lysias. He was a Roman through and through, and he did it by the book. And he knew he'd be in big trouble by doing this, and he was afraid. He had already arrested him. He put him in chains. He was about to scourge him. 
But on the next day, verse 30, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set them before, set him before that council, that Sanhedrin council. And we begin Act 5 in chapter 23. Now the Sanhedrin council, we've talked about this in the past too. It was a group of 70 men. They were the Jewish um, the, the Jewish leaders of, uh, uh, in Jerusalem and of, of Judaism. Uh, Seventy men that adjudicated the, the life and the, the, the laws of Judaism. Uh, they were the big honchos in Jerusalem. Um, it was a mixed bag because there were two sects of, of uh, Sanhedrin um, leaders of Judaism. There was the sect of the Sadducees, and they were the wealthy elite. They were the ones that... Uh, held the high priest chair. They, they, were the, they were the superior ones. But then there are also the Pharisees, two different sects, and they didn't get along. Okay, with that background, here's Paul, verse 1, chapter 23, Act 5. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And the high priest at that point commanded someone standing beside him to strike him in the mouth. Now, this is where Paul gets a little testy, a little righteous indignation. Verse 3, he said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? Who do you think you are, you hypocrite? And one of the bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest? Verse 5, Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, again he quotes the law, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And Paul backs away. It's, it's quite ironic, I think. Here's the high priest who did something in violation. He has Paul struck. He, he's illegally uh, uh, holding Paul. Um, he's trying to kill him. And it, the very one he's trying to kill, a violation of the law, Paul is quoting the law to him. He apologizes. He respects the law more than the high priest did. But it's at that point, I think Paul begins to realize, I, I don't have a, I don't have a, a, a chance here. This, th there's nothing impartial about this. No matter what I say, it's going nowhere. So Paul does something quite cunning. Verse 6, Perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out on the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee, and I'm on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Well, verse 7, as he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The assembly was divided. Why? Verse 8, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection or in angels or spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Paul knew that. I'm a Pharisee, I'm a son of a Pharisee, and I'm on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And boom, it threw everybody into a tizzy. There occurred, verse 9, a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisee party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, hey, we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And so by doing what he did, knowing that this, this trial is going nowhere, he throws that little bomb out there, Paul does. Everything gets into a turmoil, into a tizzy. They're fighting each other now. And it says in verse um, 10, 
and a great dissension was developing. The commander then was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them, and he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. And so Paul is snatched out of that horrible situation, brought back into the safety of the Romans, the Roman garrison. And then this verse is added in verse 11. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and he said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. I'm not sure what was going through Paul's mind that night. He couldn't leave the garrison. People were out to kill him. He didn't know where to go. He delivered the gifts to the Jewish church, James and those. He, he gave the report. He was now out about. He was, he was at the mercy of Claudius Lysias and the Roman garrison. And there he is that night. What's going to happen? Lord, what do I do next? And Jesus showed up. Paul, you're going to Rome because I'm in charge. I'm a sovereign God. And he was encouraged. Act 5, or Act 6. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. And there are more than 40 who had formed this plot, and they came to the chief priests and the elders, and they said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn oath and taste nothing, to eat or drink nothing until we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you, the council, notify the commander, bring him down to you so you can kind of determine his case more thoroughly, you know, investigate it more thoroughly. It's a ruse, right? And when they take Paul down to meet you, we on our part are ready to slay him before he even comes close. That was their plan and their plot. Verse 16, but the son of Paul's sister, Paul's nephew, heard of their ambush, and he came and he entered the barracks and told Paul. <laughs> what? Where did that come from? Paul's nephew? There's another little backstory that we don't know about. You think, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. God is in charge, and he somehow had Paul's nephew learn of the plot, go and tell Paul, Paul said in verse 17, he called one of the centurions to him and said, lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. And he took him to the commander, and he said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. And the commander took him by the hand, stepping aside, began to inquire of him privately, what is it that you have to report to me? Now again, who, who's wearing the... The big, the big boy's pants in this whole story, other than Paul. Claudius Lysias, this guy, I mean, he didn't become a commander uh, haphazardly. This guy, he's, he's a smart guy. He's a wise man. He's not going to let anybody hear this story. He brings the kid over privately. He said, you know, whisper in my ear. He doesn't want anybody, not even his trusted centurions are going to hear this. What do you got to tell me? Well, the kid responded in verse 20, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council. And he just tells this story as though they're going to inquire something more. Uh, so, but don't listen to them, verse 21, for more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they've slain him. And now they're ready and waiting for the, pro uh, for the promise from you. 
And so the commander let the young man go and instructed him, tell no one that you notified me of these things. And he called to him two of the centurions, and he said, Now get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen, 200 spearsmen, and they were to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor in Caesarea. He's going to empty the garrison, and he's going to whisk Paul away to safety out of Jerusalem. But he wrote this letter to Felix. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And by the way, you notice he conveniently left out the fact that I was about to scourge the guy, to flog him, but Felix didn't need to know that. But I found, verse 29 him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. And when I was informed that there, were, that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. Well, verse 31, that's what happened. The soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul, brought him by night to the Antipatris, and by the next day, leaving the horsemen to go leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. And when these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And Felix read it, read the letter from Claudius Lysias, and he asked from what province he was. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, that's important, he said, well, I'll give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, and gave orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. And Paul leaves Jerusalem. What a rough go. Never to return to the city of David. Um, there are a couple of verses that um, I just want to focus on as we wrap up. But to me, they govern this passage. Uh, the first verse is from that account where Paul is giving about his conversion on the road to Damascus. He said, and the Lord said to me, get up, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all the things that have been appointed for you to do. That was the first encounter Paul had with Jesus. And Jesus says, I've got things for you to do. You're going to be my man for the Gentiles. There's a lot of things I have planned for you. And it was then that Paul began, I think, to realize, I'm not in charge. Jesus is. And he's got a hold of my life. And what Jesus says goes. He's got a plan. And then the second verse that I think is very important, we saw it in verse 11 of chapter 23 during Paul's final night there in Jerusalem. Jesus appeared and he said, Take courage as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must also witness at Rome also. How's that going to come about? Paul has been almost killed numerous times. And the mob is waiting for him. How in the world is he going to get out of Jerusalem? Oh, that's right. Jesus is in charge. Jesus knows what he's doing. Jesus has appointed things for Paul to do. He's a sovereign Lord, and he does whatever he is pleased to do. 
take courage. You're going to Rome. And Paul knew that God was faithful. Paul knew that God was in charge. Paul knew that God had not fallen asleep on the job. And he was, on, he was fulfilling the plan, unfolding the plan for Paul. And folks, guess what? If you know Jesus as your Savior, he's, on, he's fulfilling the plan for your life too. <laughs> and whether we know it or see it or even experience it at times, it doesn't matter because he is sovereign and he's a plan. The Proverbs remind us of things like this. Proverbs 16, 19, the mind of man plans his way, but guess what? The Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Or Proverbs 20, 24, man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How can man understand his way? You know, our, our, our life is just not by chance. Yes, we, we make moral decisions, but behind even our decision-making, there is a sovereign God who is fulfilling His plan for our life. He's working it out. He hasn't slept on the job. He's not away somewhere forgetting, peeking in every once in a while and wondering what Mark Carey's doing. He's in control. He's God. And we're not. And He's sovereign. And He has a plan for our life. Paul wrote it this way to the Ephesian church. He said, for by grace you've been saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works that anyone should boast. And then he says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Who is in charge of your life? <laughs> a sovereign God in heaven. And you know, when we forget that, uh, when I forget that, it's amazing how I got short memories so oftentimes. I've, been, I, I've known the Lord for over 60 years. I've got a long history of, of, of stories and things that have happened in my life. But, you know, short memories sometimes. And, and I forget of the faithfulness of God. Time and time and time again, God shows up in our life. And when I forget about those things, you know what? That's when I start pushing the panic button. That's when I start taking control, trying to figure this stuff out myself, planning and making my schemes and controlling the situation as if I, a lowly worm, could control my life. When God is in charge, He's setting the course, and He's ordained all the things that are going to happen because He's God. And if He somehow doesn't squash our free moral agency to make our choices, He works over it and oversees, and He's sovereign over it all. Do you think that Paul was not encouraged when he was there in the mob and they were trying to kill him and he quieted down, began to speak in Hebrew and began to tell his story? Don't you think that even as Paul was telling his story, his heart was being encouraged? I was on my way to go to Damascus to kill some Christians. And then a bright light happened. And I heard a voice and he's telling this story. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I'm Jesus, the Nazarene. And as Paul continues to tell the story, so I, I went to Damascus, and, and God had arranged a man by the name of Ananias. And he takes me, and he, he speaks to me, and he loved me. God did all that. I didn't plan that. I didn't have a hand in it. And Paul tells the story of his life. And there where Paul was in the Jerusalem jeopardy. He had nowhere to go. 
Romans behind him, angry Jews in front of him. But he had Jesus right by him. And as he tells the story, his heart had to be encouraged because God was in charge. God was the one who said, I got things for you to do, Paul, and you're going to Rome. Maybe not the way, the cozy way you want to go, but you're going to Rome because I'm in charge. I'm God. It's when I start thinking back of life and how many times God has worked in the things of my life. But I, I have to, sometimes I just have to do the discipline of thinking that way. I've got to take some time and recall those things. Sit back and realize how God has saved me, how God has blessed me, how God has delivered me. Um, how God has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And folks, we need to go back and look at our life. We need a rear view mirror to look back and say, here were the times that God showed up. And, the, and quite frankly, that's when we need to ask the Lord. I might not even remember. I, I don't even know those times you show up. Lord, will you show me in that time, at that experience, at that tragedy, at that sad moment or whatever, at that happy moment, would you show me where you were in that, how you were working out? We have a conversation with Jesus. Show me. And then we look back. Bring to my memory, Lord. And then we celebrate it. We worship him as we see how he has worked in our life over and over and over again. And we tell our story. We pass along our story. Yeah, it might be to a crazed mob, but that's okay. We tell our story. Even in the midst of our Jerusalem je jeopardy, we tell of the faithfulness of God. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to help you do that. Um, we've recorded some testimonies of some folks here at Fellowship Bible Church. Just short little testimonies of, of how God was faithful in their life to kind of prime the pump for us to understand and recall God's faithfulness in our life. Brian Carey has been a longtime member here at Fellowship Bible Church, no relation to me. Um, but he's now one of the leaders down at the church in Woodstock, the church plant down in Woodstock. And uh, Brian has put together some thoughts of how the faithfulness of God has impacted his life. So please listen to Brian's testimony a little bit. When I was turning 40 years old, I was given the idea of looking back and trying to capture important things that had happened to me in my life, um, things that were maybe significant as I was growing up and maybe events or people, um, things that I had accomplished. So I decided very literally to take 40 objects. I decided to take stones. And since we had recently moved to Shenandoah County, I went down to the Shenandoah River and got out 40 stones. I then wrote down these 40 ideas, these 40 things, and once I had written on them, I decided to build it into a tower and uh, number each one so there's a sequential order. And I'm looking on the stone, I can, um, there's a FBC stone on this uh, tower. Um, I've got my friend Mike Lucan's name on it, the Santmeyer Mini Church, uh, a number of things that uh, cemented, if you will, um, those, those experiences that served as a foundation. We started attending Fellowship Bible Church, and from there, 
the volunteering that we did with the youth ministry led to a real interest. I mean, that was, I thought that was the next, you know, the next clear, clear path. And then shortly after that, um, just felt the call to be able to minister in a full, more of a full-time capacity. And so we ended up in Illinois, back in friendly country of family where my parents grew up and cousins still lived. And so we got involved with youth ministry there. And I was trying to figure out like, God, why are you taking me there when that, after 18 months, I mean, we pretty much went broke. But it was during that time I started substitute teaching. Even th through some of the biggest changes in my life, um, I can now look at this tower, which is sitting on my desk in my classroom, um, and I'm reminded each step of the way, each day, um, that God has been faithful to bring me to this point, and I, I know he'll, he'll be faithful each day as I face the new challenges of being a public school teacher. And because it's sitting here on my desk, um, of course, kids see it and they are just curious about it. And it gives me a real opportunity um, to point out to them certain things. Uh, that they learn certain things about me uh, throughout the course of the year. And sometimes kids actually, you know, come up and they, they'll look at it and turn around. And there are some very obvious things that are on there about my faith and about how uh, God has used me in different places and uh, different things. So it, it enables me to start some interesting conversations um, with my students about that. Really what it does is it reminds me um, of God's faithfulness and that um, as you read the stones as you go around, I mean, there's not really meant to be an end to it. I mean, because I, I stopped after 40 stones, it does technically have an end, but you know, the stones continue as you keep turning it. And as you, as you turn it and think about the future, of course, you're looking back at the past and seeing um, some of the really cool things that God did and the unique stones, some, some of the things that you would uh, you know, want to just pause and stare at and think about those, those good things. It, it helps me to see that, that there's a firm foundation that God's solid as a rock. I think maybe that's part of the reason I chose rocks is it's pretty solid. Hey, what, what are the big rocks? What are the big rocks in your life? The big rocks of God's faithfulness when He showed up, where maybe it was a, a tough time, maybe it was a happy time. But as you look back, you recall the faithfulness of God. What, 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 where were those times in your life? We want to give you a tool over the next few weeks, and in the chair back in front of you is, uh, is one of those tools. Um, so take a look at that real quick. It is a, um, something that uh, the team here has put together that uh, will help us think through the faithfulness of God in the past. Um, and the discipline of this is just, I think it's, a, it's an act of worship and a celebration to God. I would encourage you to take this home. You're smart people. I'm not going to walk, uh, th uh, walk this uh, little pamphlet uh, th with you. Uh, but you can take it home, consider it, read it, and, and, and do what it encourages you to do. Kind of come a timeline on, uh, as you reflect back and as you pray and say, God, show me where you, those times in your life, there might be something that'll be brand new to you. And you realize God is saying, 
hey, Mark, I was there. I, I, I was there. So take this as a tool. We'll, we'll uh, talk about it next week again and give you another opportunity. And, um, and follow along and consider what God has done. The psalmist tells us, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. God has been so faithful to us. So thank him for it as you use a tool like this in the weeks to come to recall the faithfulness of God and his sovereignty in our life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunities you give us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Um, and doing that in a way that is personal to us. Uh, every, everyone here, Father, has a unique story, um, a, a unique um, story about how they came to know you. And I would pray that everyone here has come to faith in you. And if not, Father, that story can begin right here today as they put their trust in you and you only. But as we recount that that story of our life and look back and, and then seek your guidance to, to direct us to those, those big rock moments. Um, may we, Father, celebrate uh, your faithfulness to us. May we bless your holy name and forget none of your benefits and to acknowledge that through it all, you have been kind, gracious, gentle, sovereign, your hand has been a part of our life and you are accomplishing your purposes and you will bring us home safely and there will be purposes on all of eternity that you have for us. It doesn't end when we get to heaven. Thank you, Father, for who you are, for what you've done and for these stories of the Apostle Paul that show us how great um, and wonderful and sovereign you are. We pray it in Christ's name, amen.